So I have a sermon with an interesting title. Mary, and, and this, this is not the mother of Mary, so I don't know how to approach that up there. Mary, your best is still good enough. Now, what's that all about? Well, the time is one week before Jesus' crucifixion, one week before his death. It's one day before he rides into Jerusalem to the sounds of people cheering. Imagine, Jesus is riding into the capital of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and people are cheering him. What's going to happen in the next few days? The cheers are going to go away and the boos are going to start. He's about to be tried in a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges. He'll be tortured, crucified in a few days, and he knows it. Do you know what's going to happen to you in a few days? What if you knew that you were going to be suffering terribly in the next few days? Jesus knew. He told his disciple on several occasions of his approaching death, but they haven't taken him seriously. They didn't get it. Only one person heard what he said and believed him, and that was the Mary I'm going to be talking about and identifying shortly. It was Mary, not the disciples, who was preparing for the cruel and crushing days ahead. So she was adjusting her schedule and her expenditures in one final act of love and respect for Jesus. The details and meanings of this act of devotion and how it received its focus is what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's in your Bible. And it's in Matthew chapter 26. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, I believe it'll be up there on PowerPoint. And let's uh, stand together, okay, as we read. Let me share what's in Matthew 26, beginning at verse 6 to 13. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman, having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head, and sat at meat. But when the disciples saw it, they, were, they had indigna indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much, and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye this woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Very I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also be this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial to her. Thank you, you may be seated. So in the final hours of Jesus' life, he is surrounded by what the then known world would consider outcasts. He's not surrounded by all the influential men and women. He's not surrounded by the chief priests and rabbis. He's surrounded by people who other people normally keep away from. In this particular case, it's Simon the leper. Now, this was one of those lepers that Jesus had healed. But people continue to refer to him as Simon the leper. But he had no more leprosy. And this is very indicative of life. It's not so easy to separate ourselves from the past. Think about that. Not so easy to separate us. Generally, people don't forget. Unfortunately, we tend to dwell on the faults and failures of others. Didn't he get fired once for stealing? Uh, didn't she have a drinking problem a while back? Time does not necessarily heal all wounds. 
In the sunset of Jesus' days, he's not in the home of the notable. He's in the home of the humble. As I said, society's outcasts. In Jesus' family, there are no outcasts. Amen? No outcasts. Jesus accepts you where you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. He wants you to have a personal relationship with him and God the Father. He wants us to put our faith and trust in Jesus. In Christ, sins of the past and failures of the past, when, when confessed, are forgiven and forgotten. He promises along with Father God that he will remember our sins no more. In God's plan, our past sins and failures are a learning tool, not a bludgeoning tool used to beat us into guilt and shame. We can learn from our mistakes. And God wants to enlighten us through the word and through the Holy Spirit to learn from our mistakes, not to be hung up back there on our mistakes. When Christ's hands were nailed to the cross, so were our sins. William Cooper wrote a hymn, and he puts it this way. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The devil wants you to be guilty. The devil wants to condemn you. God wants to take those things in your life right now that are sin and shortcomings, and he wants to let you know that they need to be changed. He wants to let you know that you have an opportunity to confess those sins. He wants to convict us, not condemn us. Verse 7, Mary brings a precious gift to Jesus. The verse calls this woman, but the other gospels name her as Mary, sister of Lazarus and a sister, a sister of Mary, a sister of Lazarus and Martha. Her gift was a fragrant oil valued in Mark chapter 14 and verse 5 at a cost of 300 days wages. What would 300 days wages be today? Probably thousands of dollars, I would imagine. Victor Hugo, the poet who is French, wrote this, as the purse is emptied, the heart is filled. Someone wrote, a cheerful giver does not count what he gives. His heart is sent on pleasing and cheering to whom the gift is given. Her gift of fragrant precious oil is richly symbolic. Oil means things in the Bible. Here's some of them. Isaiah 61.3, oil is figurative of joy and gladness. She was pouring joy and gladness upon the Savior, even though he was preparing to go through terrible pain. She was pouring what Psalm 133 verse 2 says, brotherly love. She was pouring her love out figuratively in that oil. Mark 25, 4, it's figurative of real grace. Grace means being willing to see beyond people's flaws and faults. It's something that we're given that we don't deserve. You don't deserve the grace that God gives. I don't deserve the grace that God wants to give us. But here's the reality. We don't have to deserve it. It wouldn't be grace if we did. It's free to you from God's love. He loves you unconditionally. That means when you fall flat on your face and you're the worst Christian that ever walked the face of the earth at that particular moment, he still loves you, amen? He still cares for you. He still wants to pick you up and lift you up and dust you off and help you to get back on the track. He doesn't want to abandon you in the dirt and in the mud of your past failures or your present failures. I thank God for a God like that. 
John, 1 John 2, 20 and 27, oil is figurative of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon folks in the Old Testament, but today he lives inside believers in Jesus Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've confessed that he came to earth to die on that cross, to be buried in that ground, to be resurrected, if you believe in that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, that gospel, if you believe in that Jesus, the Bible says when you ask Jesus to come into your heart and ask him to forgive you of your sin, not only did he do that, but then he sent the Holy Spirit inside to dwell in you. God's in you. We have God to share with people around us. In Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, oil, like other resources, is a gift from God. So in effect, Mary was giving God, the Son, a gift in kind. Our giftedness was given to us by God for the sole purpose of giving them away. Not to hang on to them, your gift, your ability to, to, to have hospitality, your ability to care, your ability to speak God's word, your ability to show kindness and love and compassion. It's not meant to be stored up inside of you, not meant to be locked up in your apartment. It's meant to be shared with the people in your life. The good things that you do, you want to shower people with it, which is what she was doing. She was taking these valuable things, more valuable than she could possibly afford, but she found some way to do it. And she was showering Jesus with them. The Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5, had planted the seeds of fruitful life in each of us. In you resides the potential for joy and love, goodness and patience, peace and faith, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. I'd like to adopt more of those. How about you? And these gifts become contagious. And like Mary's oil, their fragrance permeates to those around us. One of my favorite stories that Tony Campola tells uh, in his book, Tell Me a Story, is entitled God's Fragrance. Years ago, I, I shared this story with you, but I'd like to share it with you again this morning. The author, Rita Snowden, tells of her visit to a small town near Dover, England. She was having tea in the late afternoon when she became very aware of an unbelievably pleasant scent filling the air. She asked the waiter the source of the scent and was told that it came from the people passing by. He explained to her that they worked in a perfume factory down the street and were on their way home. When they left the factory, they carried with them the fragrance that had permeated their clothes during the entire day. Rita Snowden immediately saw this as an illustration of what the church can be like at its best. The church can be like this at its best. We should be a people who allow ourselves in worship to be permeated with the love of Christ and the sweetness of his presence. And then as we go forth into the world, the fragrance of the Lord goes with us and all the people we pass experience something of God's fragrance through us. Are you a bearer of God's love and a bearer of God's fragrance of love? When you leave this place today, what's it going to be like? When you get in the car, when you drive down the road, when you get home, what's it going to be like? Are you going to continue to carry this fragrance until tomorrow? Are you going to continue to carry the words of love that come from God's word and the things that he would have us to do to show that we're believers in Jesus Christ? Mary brought just a material gift 
and she brought the gift of her inward beauty. She gave from her heart out of love, faith, and respect for Christ. And how was she received? Anybody remember what the scripture said about the disciples? It says that the disciples were indignant. Think about that. These are Jesus' closest people. These are the ones that supposedly loved him and would do anything for him, die for him. The definition of indignant is anger aroused by something unjust, mean, or unworthy. Harbor any of those feelings in our heart? Has something like this ever happened to you? You did your best, and then you get criticized by others? You have a life stream or a goal, and others belittle you for your dreams? You're aglow with joy, and somebody comes along trying to steal that joy? Has it ever happened to you? You do your best, but it's received as not good enough, or too little, too late. Or you do your best, and others question your motives. All of these things are part of the human experience. You've probably experienced something like that in your time. Verse 8 says, the disciples say her gift is a waste. These are the disciples, folks. These are the people we're supposed to be looking up to in the Bible. Well, here's the reality. The Bible is filled with people who are filled with flaws. Every one of them. Learn from the things they do that are right, but also learn from the things they do that are wrong. She just poured the precious oil over Jesus' head, and to what purpose? This is waste. What's a waste? Let's take a short poll, if you will, and see if you can answer these questions either yes or no. So I'll start. Is love a waste? Speak up. Anybody say no? Love is not a waste. Is kindness a waste? Is goodness a waste? Is doing well a waste? Is preaching the gospel a waste? Pouring this ointment is an act of love. And even the people closest to Jesus didn't get it. Sometimes I get discouraged reading that. The ones closest to him couldn't get it. And they were acting just like the ones furthest away from him. Why is her gift a waste? What's behind such negative response on the part of the disciples? Maybe because she's a woman. They have a tradition and a culture bias against women. They did. She's young. Maybe they have a bias against her age. Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. It's not a question of youth, and it's not a question of gender. Maybe this was in the mix. Their harsh judgment And harsh judgmental reaction was typical of the religious legalism they were under all their lives. In that system, even Jesus was condemned when he healed the sick on the Sabbath. In such repressive systems, the beauty and grace and mercy are nowhere to be found. They had such strict laws that you had to operate within those confines. And if you didn't, everything was a waste. Everything, if you couldn't conform to these few things or these many things, You were worthless as far as they were concerned, but not in God's eyes. John 12, 4 identifies Mary's chief finger point. Are you ready? Who was the one that was instigating all of these complaints? Who was the chief finger pointer? Who do you think it was? Judas. 
The one making all the fuss was Judas, the man who will soon betray Jesus. Remember Jesus' words, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What was he thinking? Was, this, was Judas' plot to turn Jesus over to his enemies less offensive than Mary's gift of pouring oil over his head? Hypocrites. You know, the ones that Jesus got more ignited against and more aggressive towards were the religious leaders. He's the one they wound up, he's the one he wound up calling them hypocrites more than anybody. They said one thing and they did something else. And Jesus said, you guys, you tell people to do X, you tell people to do Y, and yet you don't do it. You hold people to these high standards, and yet you don't live by those high standards. For Judas, it was almost and always about the money. Follow the money. Verse 9, Judas spins his greed to concern for the poor. Okay, he doesn't want to look like he's greedy, so he spins it, and here's how he spins it. He's concerned for the poor. This is a waste because the poor aren't going to get anything. We see this all the time. It's called setting up a straw dog. Something put forward as a cover-up for something questionable. It's always hard to attach motives to why people do mean things and say cruel things. But Mary is a victim of public humiliation. In verses 10 to 13, Jesus comes to Mary's defense. There it is. Jesus to the rescue. Always Jesus to the rescue. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible is, but God. But God. But God can overcome it. God can overturn it. God can change it. God can make the difference. God can turn this whole ugly affair into something beautiful because with God, nothing is impossible. Jesus challenges the disciples' attack on a woman. The historian of Jesus' time was a man named Josephus. He wrote, a woman is inferior to a man in every way. And then there was this from the infamous atheist, Frederick Nietzsche. How many have ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Here's what he said. Woman was God's second mistake. You know what the first mistake was? Creation. Wonderful. In a few sentences, Jesus lifts Mary from obscurity onto the pages of history. Verse 13, he says, wherever the gospel is preached, Preach, she will be known. In lifting up this one woman, he elevates all women. Her personhood could no longer be overlooked. Her gift could neither be minimized nor demonized. Her place in God's salvation was a place of equality. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who killed Jesus? Raise your hand. We all did our sin. Galatians 3.26, for, for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, verse 11, Jesus says, you'll always have the poor. He didn't say, stop caring about the poor, abandon your efforts to help the poor, nor did he imply that he's number one, so forget about the poor. None of that. There's a thing called a serving gospel. 
It's the vehicle by which people see our good works and glorify our, our Father which is in heaven. In other words, if we have nothing to show by virtue of our saving race, then, then we have nothing to share with the rest of the world. Our saving grace makes itself evidence by our serving grace, by our ability to serve people, our ability to care for people, our ability not to judge people, our ability not to be mean-spirited, not to gossip, not to talk about people, not to hurt people. We're not here to hurt. We're here to help. Amen? We're not here to do the wrong thing. We're here to do the right thing. The Christian lives to love, honor, and respect Jesus Christ. The Christian lives to share the gospel of Christ in word and deed. And the Christian lives to help those in need. Mary brought her, brought her special gift to the Savior, and he blessed that act of kindness and love. Jesus recognized that Mary gave her very best, and for him, Mary's best was good enough. And may I tell you, when you give your best to Jesus, it's good enough. He can't want more than your best, can he? But he certainly doesn't want less than your best. Closing story, I told you this one many years ago. Some acts of kindness can make you cry. Alan Emery, who has not only been successful in business, but has devoted much of his time to providing leadership in many Christian organizations, is highly respected as a shrewd yet kind man, credit his father. Alan recalls taking an extended train trip as a youngster. One morning in the dining car, he heard his father himself, an important businessman, comment that the porter seemed to be in pain and walked with a limp. The poor man, it turned out, was suffering from an infected, ingrown toenail. Later in the morning, Alan was surprised to see the porter coming from his parents' sleeping car. There was a distressed look on his face, and as he passed by, big tears fell from his eyes and cascaded down his cheeks. Going into the men's lounge, the man put his hands over his face and just cried. Alan sat down on the bench beside him, and at length asked, why are you crying? Because your toe hurts? No, said the man, it's because of your daddy. With great concern, Alan pressed for the story. His parents had returned from breakfast and immediately approached the porter, asking about his toe. Mr. Emery explained that he wasn't a doctor, but he might be able to help him. He removed the man's shoe and sock and carefully lanced the infected toe and cleaned it and carefully bandaged it. It doesn't hurt all that much now, said the porter with his, through his tears. It feels fine. Well, why are you crying? Well, while he was dressing my toe, your daddy asked me if I loved Jesus. I told, my, I told him my mother did, but I didn't believe as she did. Then he told me that Jesus loved me and he died for me. As I saw daddy carefully bandaging my foot, as I saw your daddy carefully bandaging my foot, I saw a love that Jesus loved, and I knew I could believe it. We got down on our knees and prayed, and now I know that I am important to Jesus and that he loves me. With that, the porter burst into tears again. And when, he subsided, when his sobs subsided, he looked over at Alan and said, You know, boy, kindness makes you cry.
Have you spent a week doing kind things to people? Are you thinking in that mode of what can I do that I might show Christ living in me? These are the fruit of the Spirit. And we have to be in a place in this life where we're able to exemplify those fruits by doing things with our hands and with our feet and with our mind and our lips and our eyes and our personality and our behavior and our attitudes to encourage others. Are you going to be perfect at it? No. We talked about this on Wednesday night. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to come out Wednesday night, we'd be happy, happy to have you there. But we talked about the fact that none of us is perfect. We haven't matured, which is the word for perfect. We haven't matured to the point where we're so good that we don't sin and we don't make mistakes. We're still going to do that. But we have a loving God who makes us perfect when we confess our sins because we're confessing the blood of Jesus Christ. And when God looks down upon us, he sees his son. Mary, your best is good enough. You, 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 your best is good enough. So please, this morning, think, how can I give my best to Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Pray this morning, Father, that the things that we say, our attitudes, our smile, that they will all project the love of Jesus through our eyes. Forgive us for our ways, Lord. Encourage us to be better than we are now. Help us, Lord, when we fail. Help us when we fall. Help us when we do the wrong thing. Lift us up. Pick us up, Father. I, I thank you that you don't hold a grudge against us. Because if you did, we'd really be lost. So I thank you for my brothers and sisters, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.